Well, uh, so today we're in number two of our summer series on the seven deadly sins and the virtue that counteracts that. Last week, Dan Mike led us brilliantly from the sin of envy into the arena of contentment. Today, we're going to talk about the seven deadly, the second seven deadly sin of greed and the counterbalance of generosity. Now, one of the marks of a fully devoted follower of Christ is that we're a lot like Jesus. I mean, we show the world what he is like. I remember in my first pastor walking into church one Sunday morning and a mom and her little boy were right behind me. And I heard the little boy go, hey mom, is that Jesus? <laughs> I couldn't wait to hear what she was gonna say. But she said, no, he's our pastor. What I wish she would have said, no, he's our pastor, but he reminds us a lot of Jesus. So as a fully devoted follower of Christ, we learn about him, that he is love and he is merciful and he is righteous and he is just. And then our lives begin to live that out. But my guess, if I asked you what the list was, that generosity probably wouldn't have been on your list because we rarely think that as a quality of Christ and a quality of God. But nothing could be further from the truth. How generous is the love of Christ? How generous is his forgiveness to us when we trip and fall time after time? How generous is his grace that is sufficient for us? How, how generous is his mercy that is new to us every morning? And if none of that turns your heart, look at the cross. How generous was the cross? So it calls on us as followers of Christ to be generous people as well. Generous in attitude. I'm getting old and I'm praying, Lord, don't let me get grumpy. <laughs> like, can I still give people the benefit of the doubt? Can I still let that guy cut into me in traffic? The only time, I don't have enough gestures as a Christian to deal with that basically. Can I be generous in my love? Can I be generous in my forgiveness? But probably the toughest one is to be generous with our wealth. Because that's where greed comes and fights against us. So Jesus has a lot to say about that. Ready? Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And as we always do here at Crossroads, we're going to stand in honor to God's word. It's kind of a long text, so if you need to sit, no problem. But the rest of us, let's stand in honor to God and his word. Beginning in verse 13. So someone in the crowd said to Christ, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, take heed, and be on your guard against greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
Hmm, he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God, huge pivot in the text. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, who shall they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then he turned to his disciples and said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor, what, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food. Body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, who, by the way, were the lowest on the bird chain, the lowest birds on the bird chain. Consider the ravens. They neither reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you so worried about the rest? Ah, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after those things, but your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old and with treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So I have to tell you, this is one of my all-time favorite stories in the life of Christ. By the time we get to Luke chapter 12, Jesus is the headliner. Everywhere he goes, he gathers this huge crowd. I mean, if you were in a crowd, you'd say, hey, can you sign my Torah? I mean, everybody was after Jesus. And so a guy in the crowd thinks about this, gets a moment with Christ. Eye to eye, Christ looks at him, and he gets to say something to Jesus. And he says, hey, master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I'm going, dude... If you get one shot at Jesus, <laughs> maybe that's not the best thing to say. I mean, like if I had one shot at Jesus, I'd want to say something so profound that he would go, hmm, I never thought of that. <laughs> Could we have dinner? Could we discuss that? And so Jesus, in response, refuses to get caught in a family food fight fight and dives into a much deeper issue, the issue of greed. And he says to the crowd, take heed, pay attention, beware of greed. 
Now it's interesting that the, in Greek, the word greed literally means more. How descriptive. This demon in our hearts for moreness, like I need more and the more it's like a bottomless bucket, you know, the more you pour in, the more you still need. And I don't think any of us are free of that. I don't really want to admit this to you, but some years ago, Marty and I had the privilege of designing and building our own house. It wasn't huge, it wasn't a mansion, but we had to pick everything we wanted to pick, put the rooms where we wanted them to be roofed. We loved it. Six months later, I'm driving through another neighborhood. No, I don't want to tell you this. <laughs> I'm driving through another neighborhood, looking at a couple of these houses, and I'm going like, Phew. man, I wish I had a house like that. I mean, where do these demons come from? By the way, do I have a witness here? Or don't leave me up here by myself, okay? <laughs> like... <laughs> It's like you save up your money for a, a boat and you finally get this nice 30-foot boat and you pull it into the marina slip and you're on the back deck with lemonade and enjoying the sunshine and Bob pulls in next to you in a 40-footer. <laughs> Do you know the feeling? So Christ says, beware of greed. So I was wondering, like, why would he say beware of greed? And before I went further in the text, I just started listing the trouble with greed. Number one, it might just hurl you into a vortex of indebtedness. Maybe not, but it might be that your credit card invoices are a barometer of the greed factor in your life. Just maybe. It'll rob you of contentment. Dan talked to us about that last week. I love the story of the uh, Harvard, just recently Harvard grad, MBA, Wall Street executive who went to this little Mexican village for a vacation after he got done with all of his academics and everything. And he walked out onto the pier one evening while the sun was setting and in pulls this weathered fisherman with two or three yellow tunas flipping in the bottom of his boat. And he says to the fisherman like, were they hard to catch? The guy goes, no, I do this every evening to feed my family. He said, really? Like, what do you do with the rest of your day? I play with my grandkids. I take a siesta with my wife, Maria. In the evenings, I go into town and I drink with my buddies and sing songs. And he says, I'm, I'm pretty content. The Harvard guy says, hey, did you ever think of fishing all day? And then you could, like, sell a lot of fish. The guy goes, like, what then? Well, you could hire more people and buy more boats. Fisherman goes, well, yeah, but what then? He said, then you could start distributing it all over your town and all over the region. You could build a warehouse. You could buy more boats, hire, hire more people. Well, then, what then? He said, well, then maybe you could distribute all over South and North America, move to Chicago, move to L.A., the guy goes, well, what then? Well, then you could IPO your business. Put it out in stocks. The guy goes, really? Like, and what then? He said, well, then eventually, 15 or 20 years, you could sell your business. You could be a multimillionaire. He goes like, well, what then? Well, then you could move to a little coastal village like this one. play with your grandkids, 
take a siesta with Maria, go into town with your buddies. It could just wreck your contentment. I thought we ought to beware of greed as well because it will detour your affections. Matthew chapter six says, you cannot serve money and God at the same time, period, impossible. It'll distract your priorities. I like the person has said, no one ever yet on their deathbed has wished they would spend more time in the office. It'll lead you to betray Christ. Think here Judas for 30 pieces of silver for his own personal gain. Think about the times where you're tempted to stop giving to the cause of Christ because you want to buy something. Think of, uh, think of the times you've cheated on your income tax. Think of the times you've cheated on a contract. It will lead you to betray Christ. In Colossians chapter three, when listing a whole group of horrible sexual immorality, perversion, and greed, which is idolatry. So God looks at greed as an idolatrous factor in our lives. And uh, it leads you to disappointment. Can't wait to get that new car because I love the smell of that new car. And then pretty soon that inside doesn't smell that way anymore. Pretty soon somebody's got a bigger car than you have, better car, better house. Like it's that old been there, done that sense of emptiness that leads you to scramble for more. So it seemed to me there was a whole list of reasons why we might be aware of greed. But Christ trumps the list. And he says there is a reason we need to be aware of greed that's far more important. This text tells us that if I am driven by a life of greed, I cannot be rich toward God. Or flip it, in God's eyes, I am tragically, maybe even eternally poor. And maybe worse than that, although I don't know how much worse you could get, God looks at you and says, you're a fool. No wonder, he says, beware of greed. So uh, why would Christ be so concerned about this? Because greed, why don't you listen carefully here, is built on a false premise. It's built on the premise that the good life is defined by the stuff that we own and that our security can be found in that. That's the lie of our culture. And we're so up against it, aren't we? I mean, think of advertisements about, get this car, it's the good life. Buy these clothes, go to these resorts, get in this neighborhood, establish, I mean, we're like bombarded with this lie, the seduction that the good life and security in life is all about my pile of stuff. And that's what Christ is concerned about. I recently retired three months ago I'm going like, dude, I should have done this 20 years ago. This is fabulous. <laughs> so Marty and I are thinking, you know, what are we going to do? We've never gone to the parks out west. So let's go to the national parks. Well, how are we going to get there? Let's buy a camper. So we bought a camper. 
This is really serious. We've never camped a day in our lives. I may have a really good camper in October for somebody in this room. <laughs> and so we're getting all this stuff and then we, get, we got this cap that had a camper on it. And then on the bill it said, you know what it's going to say, life is good. Well, maybe. Two flat tires in the wilderness somewhere where there's nobody to help. Really? Backing it up into the site in a campground, hitting a tree, like, really? <laughs> but that's the whole, we're bombarded constantly that your security and the fulfillment of your life is in the stuff that you can possess. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus deeply wants to turn the corner for us and put something better in the place. So he says this, take heed and beware of of greed and brace yourself for a person's life consists not in the abundance of the things they possess. Shock. I mean, our culture screams that at us. Jesus is so countercultural. He's so, in fact, you know, I always, he feels upside down to me. Like, he says all these annoying things. Like, in order to live, you have to, in order to get, gain, you have to give. You know, all these, and your life does not consist in the, that seems so upside down. The problem is, he's not upside down, I am. It's like having toast in the morning, and you slather it with butter and jam, and you go walking across, well, how is it that it's on your plate and it just flips up, right? How does it always land? Upside down, and it's a mess. We're upside down, and we're a mess. And Jesus comes along like a divine spatula and scrapes us on the floor and wants to put us right side up. And that's exactly what he's doing in this text. Beware, your life consists not in the abundance of the things that you possess. He wants to free us from the bondage of this deception. So he tells a story. You know, he's always telling these wonderful stories about this rich man. Now for 2,000 years, the rich man is known, some of you know this, as the rich fool. Now that doesn't make sense, right? If you're rich, you're not a fool. If you're a fool, you're not rich. Again, such a different perspective from God's point of view. And I think it's interesting to note the profile of what made this man a rich fool. So I think there's seven aspects to the profile and when I got these, I'm going, boy, I gotta measure my life against that. Could I be counted in that category? Like number one, he was already rich. How many of you, I mean, his barns were full, right? Do I have agreement on that? Did it ever cross his fallen little brain that maybe he could give the rest away. I remember one time being in Chicago and eating at one of these steakhouse, steak restaurants, and on the menu was a 32-ounce steak. Guys, don't look at your wife when you're getting ready to order that. So I didn't look. <laughs> and I ordered it. 
and I got to have house so full stuffed. And I'm standing outside with my little like box of half a steak and a homeless guy walks up, says, can you help me? I had a $5 bill in my pocket, so I gave him a $5 bill in the name of Jesus who loves you. And then he said, how about what's in the box? <laughs> now that's overboard. That is like too much. I was full. I had everything I'd wanted. And yet this thing like, I still need more. Second thing in the profile. Notice that God is not involved in a deliberation at all. It's all what he wants to do. He's strategizing how to do the surplus, how to hoard his things. Notice that he takes the credit for it. The text that we read says, the land brought forth plentifully. So who's responsible for that? It's God who sends the rain, who sends the sun, who sends the seasons right on time. It's God who is put the nutrients in the ground, and yet he takes credit for it. Like, check me out. Look what I have. It reminds me of little Jack Horner. Anybody remember that Aesop's fable? Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating his Christmas pie, stuck in his thumb, pulled out a plum, said, whoa, what a good boy am I. I'm going, good boy, really? Like, what are you doing sitting in the corner? And what are you doing with your fingers in the food anyway? And your mom put them there and you take credit for it. You know, we prosper, we have things and we take credit for it. That, that's the pro part of the profile. The fourth part, aspect of the profile is that he's self-consumed. If you read through the story, six times he uses the pronoun I Four times he uses the pronoun my, he's totally self-consumed. What are the first words that little children learn? No and mine. This guy is totally, hasn't grown out of that adolescence yet. The profile of a rich fool is that he wants to hoard the surplus, strategizes how to keep it for himself, and the sixth part, he believes that the abundance of stuff will deliver his security and give him the good life. He said, now I have many years to live and I will eat, drink, and enjoy my life. So given that profile, I went down and tried to measure my own life. I wonder when the last time it crossed my mind to say, you know what? I have enough. Maybe I can do something special with the rest of it and give it away. That ever cross your mind? When's the last time when I'm doing something financially or making a purchase that I invite God to the table and I let him be my financial advisor and just say, Lord, what would you have me to do with this? Or are my finances basically godless, like this guy's? When was the last time I took credit for everything that I'm stacking up instead of being grateful that even undeserving me, that God has been so good to me? When's the last time I've been so self-consumed 
and forgot that the biblical view of wealth is that it all belongs to God. And I'm a steward of it for his glory and the good of others. And I find myself wondering, am I hoarding my surplus? Or maybe I could distribute my surplus. And do I really believe that my security and the good life is wrapped up in a stack of stuff? It's a sobering measure. I invite you to measure yourself with it so that you can turn the pivot from greed to what God has in store for you. The seventh thing, though, I think is intriguing. And that is that his whole village would have thought that he is a smashing success, right? Like, wow, you're fabulous. Write a book. Tell us how you did it. Like, this is phenomenal. You are the success. I wish I could be like you. And God enters the scene and has a whole different perspective. God enters the scene and says, you're a fool. That's pretty heavy, serious stuff. I want you to know that I'd like God to call me his friend. I'd like God to call me his brother. I'd love for God to say, you're my good and faithful servant. The last thing I want to hear from God is, Joe, you're a fool. So uh, I think it doesn't make a whole lot of difference what people think of me. I think it makes a lot of difference what God thinks of me. I, I don't think it makes any difference who I impress, maybe even with all this stuff. I think it makes a ton of difference if I'm impressing God with my life. So I think we need to do a little surgery here. Like, why was he a fool? The text becomes very specific here because, again, we can measure our own lives with this. Two reasons in the text. Number one, he is a fool because, as we've said already, he believed the lie that in his abundance was security and the fulfilling future. The profound words in the text, tonight your soul is required of you, then... Whose shall these things be? Like he who dies with the most toys is still dead. Just let that ring. When you get a telephone call from your doctor's office telling you that there you are in stage four cancer, your pile of stuff doesn't do a bit of good. It's not fulfilling your life. And it's not giving you any security. When you're lying on the floor of your living room, having a massive debilitating stroke, your stuff means nothing at that point. When you're T-boned in an intersection with someone who runs a red light, who, your stuff means nothing. I came all the way from my house this morning to tell you this that Jesus never intended that our security and fulfillment in life would be in stuff, but in our relationship with him, who will never leave us or forsake us. I can lose everything, 
but I'll never lose Jesus, nor will I lose his resources of grace and support and comfort and forgiveness and love to say nothing of eternity. True riches are found in my relationship with Christ. That's where security and fulfillment is intended to be. I have a friend uh, who is the leading pastor of several churches in Belarus, formerly of the Soviet Union. So I was over there one time visiting him, kind of meeting all the pastors, and his name is Viktor Krutko. One day he said, hey, can we go visit my mom? She lives about 60 miles out of town. So we got in a van, went out to meet his mom. Pretty soon the highway turned in like to a dirt road. Then it turned in like two tire tracks. And we go back and we get to this like shanty town. And all these just little like shacks. We pull up in front of his mom's place. And she comes out, ruddy cheeks, probably in her late 70s, happy, beaming, embraces him, he introduces her to us. We go in the house, I'm walking down the little path and here's a vegetable garden and there's a pig. I go, hey Victor, your mom's got a pig. He said, yep, she raises him in the summer and butchers him to eat all winter long. I'm going, cool, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> we get inside, it's like maybe 600 square feet. It's like two rooms, one where she eats, a living room where half of it divided by a curtain and she sleeps in the other half. And she's beaming. She's speaking in Russian the whole time, like, and he's interpreting for us. And I thought it was, she was so happy that he was home. Well, she was, but she kept talking about Jesus. She was saying about how she can't wait for him to come back. She was just saying, you know, his presence and the joy of her life with Jesus and she couldn't stop talking about it. And I'm going, oh my goodness, this woman is really rich. I'll tell you right now, my bank account is a lot heftier than hers. Right? So is yours. But she had something that on that moment I wish I had to find my fulfillment and my security in my relationship with Jesus. So that's why he was a fool, number one. Number two, he was a fool because he was not rich toward God. So suddenly I realize excuse me for drinking, it's kind of a dry sermon, so I thought I'd get to say. <laughs> so he was deceived to think that it was in his abundance that his fulfillment and security would be found. Secondly, it was a fool, rich fool, because he was not rich toward God. So I think God has a whole different definition of wealth. Now, you need to know that life is built on definitions, right? How you define something is how you respond. One of my, I may have told you this in a previous time here, but one of my favorite definition stories is about the Texas rancher who was in Germany doing agricultural consulting for a little farmer. And the farmer says to him, or he says to the farmer, how big's your place? Farmer, not very big, about a mile this way, half a mile this way. And then the German guy said to the Texan, how big is your place? The Texan goes, oh, I don't know how to tell you this. Let's see, um... Well, if I get my pickup truck in the morning and start driving, I'm still on my land when the sun goes down driving my pickup truck. The German said, 
I had a pickup truck like that once myself. <laughs> it's all about the definitions. And Jesus has a far different def definition of wealth. So in the text, he gives us two action points to flipping from not being rich toward God to being rich toward God. In verse 31, he says, seek the kingdom of God. So here we are in our life building our own kingdoms. Like, and the kingdom of God's like a PS, like a parenthesis. Jesus wants to shock us out of that. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the ruler, rule of Jesus Christ who rules today. And the kingdom is all about reversing everything that got damaged in the fall. In the kingdom of God, ultimately, the lame will walk, the blind will see, the poor will prosper, and lost lives will be redeemed. So are you with your wealth seeking to advance the kingdom of God? That's the question of this text. I'm on the board of an organization called Cure International. I love it. I love to be generous with my time. I love to be generous with my prayers. I love to be generous with my will to cure because they are building the kingdom of God. They operate eight hospitals across Africa. It's for the least of these children who come in from villages with club feet who are counted in their villages to be cursed by the villagers because of their ailment and marginalized. And they come in and they're healed and they're witnessed to and they come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. The, the lost are redeemed. And then they work with local churches to build the discipleship ongoing. That's the kingdom of God. And I love being generous with the kingdom of God. I think about this church. As you know, my son-in-law is the pastor, lead pastor. So we're kind of stuck. But I'm telling you right now, it's a good stuck. I love this church. I love the worship. I love the teaching of the word of God. I come here and it is like a retreat, a spiritual retreat. The thing I love about this church more than that is that this church is busy about building the kingdom of God, redeeming the lost, reaching out to the poor and the needy, making a difference for Jesus Christ and his glory. We love being generous to this church because we think that to be rich toward God is to seek the kingdom of God. Not just to seek the kingdom of God, but action number two in the text, in verse 33, it says, sell what you have and give to the poor. Now any Jew, and certainly Christ knew, that in their whole culture, the provision of material goods into your life was partly to be able to bless others with the material goods. And that's what pleased God. My dad uh, had a life verse, Isaiah 58, 10 and 11. One day I thought, I had to look that up. So I looked it up. And I read Isaiah 58. And Israel, Jesus is, or God is chastising Israel because they're all functional. They're doing sacrifices. They're keeping, they're fasting. They're doing everything functionally but their hearts are far from God. 
So God says in Isaiah 58, I want to read you my dad's life verses. God says, is not this the fast that I have chosen to reach out to the hungry and to those in needs? Then verse 10, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, rich toward God, and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So the two actions to become rich toward God are to seek and sell. That's the pattern. Seek his kingdom with your wealth. Sell what you have. Give to the poor. It's kind of like um, the contrast here. It's like I take my surplus, my wealth, and give it to God and give it to the needy. The rich fool was just the opposite. The arrows are going the wrong direction. He's taking it all for himself and hoarding the surplus in for himself. I think about the great commandment when the lawyer said to Jesus, what, are the, what is the great commandment? He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. The second is like on it. You should love your neighbors yourself. And I would just like to put a little twist on that. Love the Lord your God with your wealth. Love your neighbor with your wealth. That's what it means to be rich toward God. To be truly rich, we do not accumulate, we advance the kingdom. To be truly rich, we do not hoard, we help those in need. With Jesus, it really is better to give than to receive. But that might lead to a second problem in the text, and that is the problem of worry. Because he turns to his disciples and says, what are you guys so worried about? So some of us here are going like, yeah, if I get in a seek and sell pattern, what about me? What if I don't have enough? Like, what if, you know, you've got to define what is enough, I guess, but it's that anxiety and it's that worry. So here's the antidote in the text. I love this. Jesus says, the Gentiles seek to accumulate things for themselves. We're not like that. Your father knows you have need of these things, Christ said. Seek the kingdom and all these things will be added onto you. Embracing the fact that God is our provider. God has a lot of nicknames in the Bible. You know, just think about all the different names of God. Nicknames are something that's attributed to a person that reflects some part of, in high school, in elementary school. Kids are really mean in elementary school. So I was called liver lips. By probably generous proportions of lips or something, I have no idea what. But all of his nicknames are a reflection of his character. And one of those nicknames is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. It's kind of like trickle-down economy, like as I give, he provides. And you have to embrace that. I'm reminded of the story of a very wealthy friend of mine whose daughter was about ready to get engaged and her to-be fiancé calls him, 
call and says, hey, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? Because he lived like on the West Coast or something. And so the guy goes like, were you a philosophy major in college? Yes, I was. Well, do you think you'll have mortgage payments? How will you support my daughter in a home with a philosophy major? The guy goes, well, really, sir? I'm not quite sure, but I believe God will provide. He says, do you think you'll ever have kids? Yeah, we hope to. He said, well, you're a philosophy major, right? So how are you going to be able to support kids? Guy goes, well, we've talked about that. We're not sure, but we believe God will provide. He said, um, do you think you'll have like insurance bills and so on and on with the conversation. He gets off the phone, he says to his wife, I've got some really bad news and some good news. The bad news is this kid doesn't have a clue how he's going to support our daughter. The good news is he thinks I'm God. So God is the provider. He can provide by increasing your income. He could provide by decreasing your expenses. He can provide by special supplying, surprise things that come your way. I remember early in our marriage, one of the really good things that we learned was someone who came along and mentored us about wealth. They said, number one, get out of debt. So we made that commitment. Number two, double your giving to the kingdom. So we made that commitment. Number three, set aside a little pool, if you can, to give to people in need. And so we made that commitment. It wasn't easy, because we didn't have a lot of money. But it's not a matter of a lot, it's a matter of intention, isn't it? So, I mean, if you make those kind of commitments, you know, God comes along and tests the commitment. So soon after that, I was driving this old beat-up VW, like with a front tire that was about air in the tire, air outside, and rubber dust between. We needed a new tire. But I said, well, God is the provider. I could have taken my magic genie out of my wallet and gotten one just like that, provided for myself, but I wanted to trust God as provider. I remember getting my little son, Joe, who's about four or five, getting him into the prayer loop on this thing so he can learn that God is the provider. He says to me, Dad, don't bother asking God. He's too busy drinking Pepsi going like, where did he get that from? And I thought, you know, I'm his father. God's called father. Maybe he wanted my help and I was reading the newspaper. I don't know. But what happened was the very next Sunday, somebody put in the offering plate an envelope for Pastor Stoll and family. And so the guy who counts the offering handed it to me. I wanted to open it up right away, but oh, well, thank you very much. And I got home and over two crisp $20 bills back then that could buy a tire. And God proved that he was the provider. And I had the joy of telling my son, your earthly dad's not all that, he's kind of lame, but your father in heaven, he takes care of us. He will provide. Don't worry, that's what Christ said. Why are you so anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? He will provide. So here's his advice, okay? Here's how we do this. How we do the flip from greed to generosity. He says, sell what you have and give to the poor. Now that's a head scratcher, right? Okay, now how much do I have to sell? (laughs) 
like everything, I'm out of here. No, God wants you to have shelter, by the way. He doesn't want you to freeze during the winter. He probably wants you to have a car so you can go to work, so you can have some surplus to advance the kingdom and give to the poor. So it's not everything, okay? In fact, I think it's interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, God has given us richly all good things to enjoy. So maybe there's no guilt in a segment of my life being some things that I enjoy. So what I don't want you to do is to get stuck in how much. I just, I don't know how much. What I want you to do is get started. So here's a suggestion. Have a garage sale for Jesus. That was a good place for an amen, by the way. Get all your friends together. Have a massive garage sale for Jesus. And know the joy of giving it to the kingdom and giving it to those who are in need. Just get started. Do do eBay, you know, how much junk do you have in your house? De-junk your house for Jesus. Like, go and just start selling stuff on eBay. Not so you can get a bigger, better car, but so that you can advance the kingdom of Christ and give to those who are in need and be rich toward God. And every once in a while, take something really precious and put it on eBay just to tell Jesus how much you love him and then prosper his kingdom and prosper other people. Just get started. Downsize. Marty and I were thinking the other day that we live in about 900 square feet of our house. We have coffee here, watch a little TV here, we read here, we eat here. If it weren't for the fact that we love having our grandkids and family over, so we need a little extra space. You know, maybe we could downsize and give the surplus to the kingdom and to those in need. How wonderful would that be? And maybe you can create surplus Think about this. Create surplus by eating out less. Guy told me that his wife, you know what my wife makes for supper? I said, no, what? He said, reservations. (laughs) Go on a Starbucks fast. I saw a whole bunch of young, beautiful women over here walking, laden down with Starbucks this morning, like, girls. Go on a fast. (laughs) And give the money away. Is it a deal? All right. (laughs) Create surplus. And some of you may be saying, you know what? Stole, you don't. I have way too much month left at the end of the money. Like, ah, so get started. Double your giving to God, $1 to $2. Get out of debt. Just get started. It's not the size. It's the intent of your heart to become rich toward God. So then Jesus ends up with two PSs at the end of the text. Number one, he says, if you do this, you'll make yourself treasures in heaven 
for moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves break in and steal. So you've heard it said you can't take it with you. Jesus says you can send it on ahead. And if you ask me, I'd rather have treasure in heaven than the empty, fleeting treasures on earth. If I have a choice. Make yourself treasures in heaven. The second PS I really like. He says, for where your treasures are, there will your heart be also. Wow, that's heavy. See, Lord, you've got my heart. He says, let me see your checkbook. I remember when we lived in Chicago, I'd sometimes commute in on a train from the suburbs to downtown. And on the train, when you ride in a train, everybody's reading their newspaper. And I could look around the train and tell a lot about every single one of them. If they were, you know, if life was kind of like dull, they were into the comic page. Like, they wanted a good laugh on the way to work. Uh, If they were into politics, then they were at the op-ed page. And if they'd had a depressing day, they were reading the old bits to see if they made it through the day. (laughs) But I could tell a lot about every single one of them by how they read their newspaper. Jesus can tell a lot about your heart by where you put your treasure. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, thank God that he's rescued us from the bondage, empty, destructive, lying, bondage of greed and opened up the door to become rich toward him by living like Christ a generous life. Let's bow our heads. Now we want to spend just a few minutes to let you work on this with you. I'm done talking I'm praying the Spirit will start talking with you now. What does this mean for you? What kind of commitment could you make now? Though challenging, this is like I said, generosity with our wealth is a, it's not an easy thing. But when Jesus clarifies it so much for us, how much better for us to escape the deception and be rich toward him. May you prayerfully pivot from greed to generosity.